This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We were all shocked once again, of course, with the latest pictures out of London uh, from Saturday. Seven people, including one Canadian, were killed over the weekend by attacks and attackers who drove a van into a pedestrian bridge on London. That's London Bridge, right by the Parliament buildings, of course. And also attacked in the Borough Market, which is uh, just uh, below there in the same neighborhood. The attack takes place five days before the national election, of course, in the U.K., and uh, Prime Minister May says that, uh, that it will go on as planned. But obviously this is having an impact on the election. It's having an impact on uh, terrorism experts and anti-terrorism experts who are discussing just what happened, how it may have been prevented. Joining us to uh, give us the latest on this and his perspective, of course, is Ross McLean, crime specialist and security expert, former Toronto police officer. Uh, the website, RossMcLeanSecurity.com, of course, and the Facebook page, Crime, Power, and Politics. And always a welcome guest on the Bill Kelly Show here on CHML. Ross, good morning. How are you today? Yeah, hi, Bill. I'm pretty good, and you're right. It's uh, one heck of a busy news time, isn't it? it? It certainly is, and especially when we heard late on Saturday, I guess, Ross, about what had happened over in the U.K. and on the streets of London once again. Uh, did you, like many of others, uh, get the sense of deja vu all over again? Yeah, completely. In fact, this one is rolling out uh, basically like the script is what we've seen, you know, from what we know now, Bill. There's uh, latest intelligence we're, we're, I'm catching up on here is that this uh, this attack was called for uh, in a uh, uh, an ISIS uh, website and magazine. Uh, they actually put out instructions about the type of uh, vehicle to get or to rent to cause the most damage and how to do it, how to use knives. Uh, we're finding out that uh, uh, police actually within the last month had picked up intelligence and listened in on a terror cell in that area talking about doing a vehicle attack in downtown London. They had that. And uh, of all things, you know, so, uh, some of the information is coming out now about who these suspects were, Bill. Well, they do say they know their identities. Well, my, my suspicion is they knew their identities within 30 minutes of, of having shot them and taken them down. Uh, because these people were known by the police. One was even on TV on a show about radical uh, Islamists uh, for doing it. So I had no doubt that they knew who these people were right away. And this is where the problem comes in, uh, Bill. We've, we've heard this again and again and again, that the police have these people on the radar, looked at them, and yet still nothing takes place to prevent these sort of uh, heinous attacks. Well, and, and as you tweeted earlier this morning, and I know you were on Global uh, earlier this morning talking uh, w with Jeff and others about, about this whole thing, and, and one of them, and we don't have their names yet, but we, as you mentioned, Ross, police do, and I'm sure there'll be a media conference shortly and we'll probably get all that information. But one of them was, I guess, uh, of the extremist, was even more extreme. He actually got booted out of his own mosque because he was too extreme. And apparently police knew about this, and you, the, which begs the question, well, what are they doing about it? Well, I'll tell you, and, you, and you're right about that. There, there was a person from that mosque who's given an interview, uh, albeit in disguise, to, uh, to the news organizations, that says that this man was tossed out of their mosque for having uh, two radical ideas, even for this mosque. And he indicates that he called the actually called the uh, the terror hotline and informed the police about this. Yet there was nothing done to deal with this. So I, I'm going to tell you what my senses are about this, Bill. My, my sure. sense is the police are overwhelmed. The police are overwhelmed with suspects. I've just seen a uh, one of the police commissioners today uh, put out a statement saying that the number of suspects, the terror suspects they have, is growing rapidly. Now, they have the numbers. They're not saying what that is. But we've heard that the numbers are upwards of 23,000 people who are suspected uh, to be on the terror watch list, if you will. And I'll point out that in the, for that area, the greater London area, there's only 30,000 police officers. So you've got almost as many bad guys as you do uh, police looking after them at this point. So the police are being called upon to monitor, look at these people. And my suspicion is that they're going in, they're making their fast assessments, they're going to have to fill out a quick report, they're doing what they can, and they're only looking after the worst of the worst. But apparently these ones that are just below that le level obviously are quite capable of carrying out these attacks. Let's let's talk about those numbers for a second, because I think this is something that is, has been subtext for an awful lot of these discussions. But now that these are happening with more frequency and, and it's seemingly the same kind of attacks, I think we have to talk about this. I mentioned off the top, Ross, that uh, they're in, of course, the midst of a U.K. election. It's later on this week, of course. And by all numbers, Theresa May is going to get reelected as the prime minister. 
But part of the the controversy over there that that I think is is rather interesting, given what happened on Saturday, is there was some talk during the campaign, especially from the conservative side, from uh, Theresa May's party, that they might look at a reduction in police services there uh, to, as a budget me- measure. And and this obviously, I know that Mayor Khan in London was apoplectic about this. He says you can't do that. But this has got to change that debate, given what happened on Saturday. Well, I think yeah, I think you have to look at all of the issues that are around here. Uh, they've had that talk about the reduction of police. They're actually down almost 3,000 police officers for that force, for that area. So that's about a 10% reduction uh, in police that are, that, are, that are protecting that area. And there's also the problems of, do the police now have to be armed? Uh, you know, we had one, uh, the one transit cop was stabbed in the face trying to fight them with just his baton. You know, had there been police there on scene that had a gun, would it have been uh, resolved a lot quicker? Uh, so these are the questions they're going to have to start asking themselves about what are our tactics, what are our resources, and are we just going to continue to respond or are we going to preempt this terror? I mean, we've talked in the past, Ross, and, about the, the terror network and, and the security network that's in place here. And we, we know about the five eyes, of course, about the U.K. and the Americans and, and Australians and Canada has a role in that as well. Uh, and they're supposed to be sharing information about this sort of thing. Uh, and we were also told, of course, that the U.K. authorities have suggested there have been other plots that they have nipped in the bud before they actually got to this point. But but hey, one is one too many in a situation like this, that when they apparently knew of the participants in this, uh, knew that there was a plan afoot in some way, shape, or form to do something on the streets of London, uh, yet this thing still happened. Yeah, to my mind, what they're going to have, going to have to do is they're going to have to put in some real legislation that gives police the ability to absolutely preempt, pick up, put people away, deport them uh, if they're involved in this. And let me give you an analogy that I think works with this very well. We are tougher on child pornography than we are on terrorists. If you're involved in downloading, creating, or trading child pornography, you'll be in jail in no time. And the police will have you, and, and our society finds that despicable. The same thing is not true about all this terrorist uh, uh, stuff that's flying around. We know that apparently uh, at least one of these uh, terrorist attackers, he and his friends were watching uh, videos by a um, radicalized Iman, if you will, for doing stuff. So these are the sort of things that I think if we pick up on, we allow the police to be able to deal with this, the courts to be able to deal with it. We make sure the public knows about it, that if you get involved with this, you're going to be picked up and you're going to be dealt with. We have to preempt this. This waiting for someone to kill someone or explode themselves, is, is that's just a losing strategy. Well, there's a very interesting point on that subject, Ross, and I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, because, again, uh, Prime Minister May uh, responded to the attacks on Saturday, and, and in her, her comments she made some reference to social media and, and suggested that those uh, that, that run those vehicles, and Facebook comes to mind right off the bat, are going to have to be more diligent in their screening processes. And, of course, there was a big pushback, as there always is, from those agencies to say, that's not our problem. It's not us up to us to do this. It's up to security measures. Yet, your point is well taken. They do do it when it comes to things like child pornography and do it rather effectively because it's a great assist, of course, to, to, to law enforcement agencies. Yet, they don't seem to apply the same scrutiny to people that they think may well be planning something like this. I think they have to take some responsibility for that. I think there does need to be responsibility for that. And let me give you just one other metaphor here, Bill, that the reason why political correctness is getting in the way of a lot of this, political correctness is what's stopping uh, effective defenses about this. If this is, let's take uh, Islam out of it, and let's say this was Ebola. People were dropping dead because we know that there's one country that has Ebola as a virus in it. The people are traveling from there. They're going into other cities. And then people are dropping dead in the clumps of dozens around them because they're getting this Ebola virus. We would, you would see a travel ban right away. You'd see people being quarantined. You'd see tests going on. You'd have all kinds of uh, fast action for dealing with it because it's just a disease. But because this has the idea of political correctness around it, and that some want to play up whether there's bigotry and prejudice or this or that, it's actually hampering the ability to protect and save lives. One of the things that we've noticed, and again, we're going to get more details, I guess, in the hours ahead here once uh, the police start making some public comments, Ross, but in the in the stuff they have told us so far, uh, you've asked in the past and, and, and suggested that, you know, there has to be better dialogue. And we've heard leaders always, uh, including Mayor Khan of London, of course, because of these previous attacks, 
say that, look, if you see something, you've got to report it. Well, uh, as we heard after the attack on Saturday, uh, a number of people, in, 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 in Muslim people actually in London, are doing this. Uh, they are passing information on to the authorities in London and in, and in the greater U.K., it seems as if they either cannot or do not act on it fast enough to try to, to, to nip these things in the bud before these occurrences happen. Well, that's where I'm saying that we're looking at the police overwhelm here. Yeah. All the, all the police are left to do. I mean, can you imagine the stack of the reports? Here come, here comes the calls. We've got 20,000 radicalized uh, people perhaps in the area. You've only got 30,000 police officers who have to do all the other policing and everything else. You have to go out and investigate, look into these people, try and come up with a rating on them and decide whether you have to put them on the high on the list or low on the list or where you put them. You know, there's actually one bit of information coming out that apparently in one of the raids uh, on one of the suspects' homes, the police were seen coming out carrying a document. And the document seemed to say on it, because you know these photographers have got the great lenses now, Bill. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it, it seemed to have said that something about someone's passport having been taken and that they've been cautioned and they've been talked to or something like that is what they saw. So the police were on these people, but they're incapable of doing anything. You know, it's sometimes it's like it, maybe it reminds me a bit, you know, way back when I was on the police force, they started to come in with the Young Offenders Act and things like that. You get kids starting to laugh at you because they know you couldn't do anything to you. So maybe we're a little bit right around there. Let's talk a little bit about how the police responded to this. Uh, as we, they start to put this picture together for us, the attack started at 9.58 p.m. London time, of course, on Saturday night uh, on London Bridge and, of course, spread to a surrounding uh, a neighboring uh, market that's uh, not too far away. Uh, by all accounts, uh, they responded, police that is, by 10.08, uh, almost 10 minutes later, and uh, it didn't take long for them to respond and to actually take down the three main terrorists. When they were there, they were they they responded very well. They had automatic uh, rifles. Apparently, they fired about fifty rounds. Three different officers. Uh, only one person was hit in crossfire, who apparently is going to be okay, but who was hit in the head. So certainly, the officers who responded with the weapons knew how to use them and use them. But I would I will tell you something though. You know, they had just stopped taking the military off the streets when they had raised the threat level before. The military was on the streets protecting, I'm sure, this very bridge. Once they were gone, it, and it fell back on the police to deal with it. And let me tell you, eight minutes is one hell of a long time uh, when you're the one on the, on the receiving end of either shooting. Well, if you're one of those having, people on the bridge, yeah. Yeah, it is a hell of a long time. And, you know, this is part of the deal. Way back when, once again, in my antique days when I was on the job in the city of Toronto, you would have a priority response of less than two minutes in the city of Toronto. That's what you would have. I knew it because if you put out, you know, what every officer likes to, when they put it out, the assist PC, meaning you're getting your butt kicked somewhere and you need help, they'll be there within two minutes. Now it's not the same. Now you're up around four or six minutes, even in the city of Toronto. The response times are just not as fast as they used to be. Well, and this is the emergency response unit, of course, that uh, that came to the bridge that day and, and the ones who were engaged, the terrorists in that. But it goes back to the point that you made uh, when you had, you and I had this discussion during the first London Bridge attack some months ago now uh, about officers on the scene and are they equipped both physically and mentally to be able to handle something like this? It's it's very difficult. It is very difficult. Look, uh, let's we haven't talked about this part yet. These these terrorists also strapped themselves up with fake looking suicide vests, right? Now, part of the reason for doing that was obviously to induce terror in people when they walked around, but also seemingly my bet would be that they would hope it would slow the police response of being scared to run up to them in case they blew themselves up, or scared to shoot them in case they ignited the vest or something like that. So uh, it's it's a very very dangerous situation, and of course in Manchester, just before that there was a bomb that went off. So police are aware that that bomb making technology has crossed the tunnel and it's on the ground. So it's it's a very very dangerous situation for just a standard police officer to have to deal with. The fact that uh, and you talked about this at the beginning of our conversation here, Ross, that uh, these people seem now we know in hindsight were known to authorities. Uh, is that why we've seen so many arrests over the last number of hours? Where the last number I saw, about twelve people have been picked up at so far. Uh, is is there evidence? Do you think at this point that they're connected, or are these just uh, suspects, quote unquote? No, I think you're going to find evidence that that, that there's a connection here for doing it. Uh, there was a report that apparently the one uh, leader 
uh, terrorist guy about a week or so ahead of time through a big barbecue for him and his friends that people thought was basically a going away barbecue uh, that he was having. They've arrested a bunch of women uh, as well. And we've also seen that before. We don't know what all the issues are here, but we've seen in the past before that these terrorists also will have uh, women who are involved who knew something about what was going on or somehow helped uh, to put things together. So we'll certainly find out more information eventually. Although I have to tell you, the police, maybe it's because of the election being right around the corner here, they seem to be a little bit more closed-mouthed about this one than, than what they typically are. The response that we've heard from Londoners, those on the street, of course, I guess is typical of, of Londoners. I mean, they have great resolve over there. You know, we're not going to let this affect us. Uh, you know, they're not going to screw our lives around, et cetera, and variations on that theme. And I, I believe they're sincere when they make those comments uh, because they've seen this uh, for many, many years, whether it was IRR terrorists or now, of course, uh, uh, radical uh, who, radicals who are, are partaking in this. But at some stage, though, is there going to have to be a conversation over there about perhaps doing something, some physical barriers, et cetera, to try to curtail this kind of activity? Well, they've just done it, in fact. Over, overnight, a bunch of uh, metal and cement barriers have appeared on bridges in London just to protect people who are walking along the sidewalks for doing things. I mean, that's, that's just come out. So things are going to be happening. And, you're, you know, listen, you are right, and I support the people who, you know, they liked having the concert from Manchester the other day. That's all a good thing. Uh, keep your chin up, we're going to keep on, we won't be deterred. There's a big part of that, and that's an important part of it. But I will tell you, I believe there's a quiet uh, majority of people in the UK who are sick, fed up with this, and want to see some action taken. Can you imagine being the man, Bill, who put in the call? Put in the call about, I think this guy's a radical terrorist, here's the reason, here's what he's done. Then you find out a couple of months later he's done something like this to just kill and terrorize all these innocent people. I mean, there, there's some upset people there. Well, Prime Minister May's comments uh, were enough is enough, and I guess that leads to the question, what do you plan to do about it? And, and I guess we're all waiting to see exactly what that reaction is going to be. Ross, thanks as always. Uh, great having you on once again. I know this, this is a very fluid situation, and uh, I know we'll touch base again as we get more information. But thanks for this today. I really appreciate the time. Yeah, it'll keep on rolling out, Bill. We'll keep on top of it. You thanks. betcha. Thanks again. Ross McLean, crime specialist, of course, security expert and former Toronto police officer. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Last week, we were talking with Councillor Jason Farr, uh, and he, as he was having our discussion, uh, he was actually on his way to Ottawa for the Federation of Canadian Municipalities Conference, which was happening in the capital city. Well, uh, as part of that, the large urban mayors uh, from Canada also meet, uh, usually to have some discussions with uh, folks from the federal government, and if they're lucky, uh, the prime minister, or at least uh, the prime minister's representative, to get uh, some feedback and maybe some help on some key issues. Of course, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger was there, and uh, he talks to us now as he joins us to talk about some of those meetings and uh, some of the concerns that have been raised, and perhaps maybe even some of the uh, the answers that the federal governments can offer to municipalities. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us. Uh, Mr. Mayor, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Yeah, good morning, Bill. Are you still in the capital? Uh, no, I'm uh, I'm in Hamilton, actually sitting out of uh, Paramedic uh, Fire Station 32. We just did an announcement on paramedicine uh, services in Hamilton with uh, Mr. Mr. McMeekin. Uh, you know, a great program that's going to provide uh, kind of early uh, intervention for uh, citizens out there that are dealing with uh, health issues and trying to prevent, uh, you know, frequent emergency calls. So a uh, very good announcement, actually. Excellent. We can get more details on that a little bit later on. Uh, it's, yep. it's funny you should bring that up because, I mean, uh, health issues and health-related issues seem to be part of the discussion that the large urban mayors had uh, in Ottawa this past week. Uh, I know the headline uh, talked about money for uh, legalized marijuana and the pressures that that's putting on municipalities. Let's mm-hmm. let's talk about that for just a couple of seconds, if we would, because uh, we've already seen evidence here in Hamilton, Mr. Mayor, about how the proposed new uh, legalization of marijuana is going to have an impact. And there's the social impact that some people seem to be concerned about. But uh, as mayor, you've got to look at the bottom line here too. This is going to add some added, some rather substantial added cost to the city, isn't it? It is, and uh, it's uh, you know from an enforcement perspective, obviously there's equipment that's required to uh, to uh, allow for a sort of a breathalyzer type of uh, test for people that are driving uh, under the influence, and we have uh, obviously uh, 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 zoning issues that come out of this in terms of uh, legalizing you know various locations throughout the city that uh, can dispense the uh, 
the marijuana. And uh, so, I mean, all of those issues are going to put uh, additional uh, requirements and pressures and policies on top of what we already do as a municipality. So we've asked the federal government to share in the revenue. Uh, there was an anticipation of some billion dollars of uh, revenue in year one, and uh, certainly some of that revenue should go to municipalities to help offset the cost of uh, those issues that I just talked about. Well, yeah, because past governments uh, have simply said, yeah, this is a new program. Oh, by the way, you guys look after all the, uh, you know, the stuff that followed, as you say, the the, the, the policing and all these other things, licensing. I mean, there's going to be a, a lot of pressure right now on municipalities to try to handle this sort of an influx. And uh, given the financial circumstances that, that Hamilton and I guess just about every other major city are facing right these days, I don't think anybody's in a position right now to absorb all those costs. No, and it was the call by the uh, the big city mayors, uh, but it, it, uh, it's reflected in uh, f- the Federation of Canadian Municipalities' uh, direction as well. It was uh, was not the only thing we talked about, but certainly came up as an issue. And uh, we hope that uh, you know, out of all of this uh, additional taxing revenue, and I you know I think it's uh, it's supportable if, if if they're going to legalize it, then certainly there ought to be a tax component to that that uh, helps offset the costs right across the country, uh, some of that can be used in, in local municipalities to offset our uh, costs. You know what, far too often, as you point out, we have uh, programs that are uh, that are announced and, uh, and they're financed for maybe a year or two, and then the financing drops away, and we're left with the program and trying to figure out how to, how to fund it. Uh, when uh, you know it's it's gotten broad acceptance in the community, so hopefully that doesn't happen, and we have some consistent funding sources to help offset costs. Did you get any feedback at all from the feds on this? Uh, did they just take it under advisement? Are they are they aware of the of the concerns that the, the mayors are expressing? Yeah, so there we made them aware, and uh, that that uh, you know the weekend <coughs> FCM conference was a great opportunity to do that, <coughs> and the um, the big city mayor certainly has that as part of our agenda and. You know, various minister, Minister So, he was there, and uh, Adam Vaughn, uh, the, the parliamentary assistant to the prime minister, <clears throat> was there as well. And uh, we had an opportunity to share these issues with them. And uh, they took it under advisement and said that uh, from their perspective, it's, uh, it made sense. <clears throat> it's just something that they have to see through on a policy basis. The other element to this, and since we're talking, I guess, variations on the theme about health care, uh, is the opioid crisis. And, and again, yeah. I know this is a national problem. It's not just a Hamilton problem, but... But you've seen the numbers, Mr. Mayor, and we've certainly talked about it on this program. Uh, as, as troubling as these numbers are on a national basis, they seem to be spiking even higher here in the Hamilton area. We have some of the highest numbers of opioid overdoses and, and problems with that as well. Now, this, again, it should be, we think, anyway, part of a national strategy. Uh, mm-hmm. did, you, did you get any clarity from the federal government about how they're going to handle that and how cities are going to be helped? Well, so far we've heard uh, that they're uh, they're keen and they're they're. <clears throat> looking at ways and means where where they can actually provide assistance, uh, they have provided assistance in British Columbia, uh, where the uh, <clears throat> the need has spiked significantly. I think so they're expecting this year some fourteen hundred people are going to die as a result of opioid uh, or overdoses. So their need is uh, is even greater there. One of the uh, one of the critical issues that we've uh, identified that we hope to get funding for is. Uh, rehabilitation uh, treatment. Uh, we have a shortage, a significant shortage. So when uh, you know someone decides when they're you know opioid addicted that uh, they they're ready for treatment, uh, it doesn't really help to put them on a waiting list and say you know well, you may be able to get some treatment three, four, five, six months from now. That, uh, that then that opportunity is kind of come and gone. So there needs to be a much higher volume of. Uh, rehab, uh, you know, facilities and uh, uh, treatment facilities available so that uh, people that want to get treatment can get it uh, immediately. And hopefully that will, uh, you know, stem the tide in in their particular instance. And then looking at, uh, you know, real-time data and understanding what is actually going on in our community, that's a localized issue. In British Columbia, they've managed to get, uh, you know, weekly updates as to uh, the impacts of opioid and the uh, the deaths and the related uh, emergency activity. Uh, that's something that we uh, are not getting just yet uh, in, in Hamilton or in, in Ontario, quite frankly, and we've been pushing not only the uh, the provincial government, but also the federal government to help us uh, get more, uh, more accurate uh, real-time data so that uh, we can actually provide the appropriate response uh, given the resources that we have. The, the reason that's not happening right now, is it a resource problem? I mean, I know that uh, public health, like every other department in the city, of course, is is financially striped right now. I mean, things are pretty tough all the way around right now. 
Uh, would you be looking at, at assistance to try to hire more staff to try to carry out some of those numbers and do those studies? Yeah, no, it's more it's more lying in the coroner's office, and I think uh, okay. probably a shortage of staff there, and uh, you know their ability to actually get these reports done. So they're uh, you know they're a couple of years behind in terms of reporting on deaths and uh, causes of death, and uh, you know all all the kind of data that uh, we would want to keep uh, keep on top of, and so that's a provincial matter by and large, and, uh, and 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 I think the province is also asking our federal government due to you know, the, the national crisis that we're facing to also help provide uh, funding to boost uh, the the resources in the coroner's office so they can do a more uh, timely job. So I, I think it lies more there than it does in our own public health. As you know, we're, we're going through an exercise of uh, 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 safe injection sites, and uh, we have a fairly robust uh, gathering. We did the mayor's, uh, the mayor's opioid uh, symposium with uh, all of the uh, health providers in the community that are uh, connected to opioid uh, and uh, drug drug addiction. And uh, we're getting as good a response as we can get uh, localized, but it still doesn't provide us the kind of real-time data that uh, will get us a, an understanding of whether or not the, the crisis is actually spiking significantly or are we kind of level in terms of uh, where we've been in the past. How would you characterize the weekend uh, in Ottawa and, and meeting with federal officials on this? I know in the past uh, you've, you've come out of some of these meetings more frustrated, I guess, than hopeful because uh, the, the, the kind of the, yeah, we'll get back to you on this. Are, are you getting the sense that they understand the gravity of some of these issues? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, they're, uh, I mean, they're, you know, the, the main topic of conversation at the BCMC, the big city mayors, uh, was actually the, uh, the, the phase two infrastructure program. Uh, which is uh, beginning to roll out and uh, starting to get some legs. And, uh, you know, what the, uh, the affordable housing uh, that uh, they've committed to, that uh, we have yet to see uh, some funding attached to in a significant way. Uh, the transit uh, transit funding that they've, again, committed to, but uh, are now looking at phase two funding. One of the arguments we put before them is the uh, the time difference between when they uh, the, the requirement in terms of timelines when they want these projects done and when they actually announce them in various communities. And in Hamilton, we're about a year behind. So we want uh, extensions on those timelines. I mean, all of those issues are detailed issues. But my, my overall sense is that we have a federal partner that is uh, very keen on working directly with the municipalities. And, uh, you know, that is, that is new. You know, I know that... Uh, Back in the day, a former prime minister, uh, you know, made that part of his platform and didn't get a chance to exercise it. And uh, currently, the uh, the Liberal government has made it a very, very key part of how they're going to help build uh, our country. And they believe that uh, big cities, predominantly, are, are areas where most of the services are delivered and where most of the resources are going to be required. That's not to ignore all the other communities, but the reality is that people are gravitating to big cities, and that message is certainly being understood and appreciated and, and being acted on by the federal government, which is, I think, a very, very positive step. But is there a change in attitude, though, Mr. Mayor? I mean, in the past, you and, and other mayors of major cities have been asking the federal government for this assistance. And, and to their credit, there, there have been some one-offs. I mean, uh, you know, even the Harper government came through with some funding, of course, uh, you know, for things like Randall Reef, and, and, and we're very supportive of the Innovation Park and some other projects like this, and, and that's greatly appreciated. But the, what you've always asked for is sustainable funding. In other words, a program that you know is always going to be there, that you can tap into, not unlike what they do in the United States and over in the U.K. and other uh, jurisdictions like that, where those cities know that they can count on that money when projects like this come up. Is there uh, any commitment that we're moving further toward that now? The commitment isn't there yet, but it's a <clears throat> very active part of the discussions. Uh, the, uh, they understand that uh, predictable revenues is uh, what is going to help us actually plan and get on top of our asset management plans. And so they, uh, they understand that. Uh, they have not made a commitment uh, to uh, sustainable funding and where it might come from, but it's part of the discussion right now, and that's a discussion we weren't having before and uh, we're clearly having now, and I think that's a step in the right direction. They are delivering funds. I mean, we, we've not seen a federal government to roll out this kind of infrastructure funding, uh, you know, for quite some time. They've made those commitments. They're uh, following through on those commitments in partnership with our provincial government, current provincial government, who are, have also made a commitment to infrastructure. We're seeing more infrastructure money now than we've ever seen in our in our history. So that's a, that's a positive step. But you're right. Sustainable funding is the key. Uh, the province has made uh, some commitments on additional gas tax money. 
We're expecting that uh, the federal government will do uh, similar commitments, and that is a more reliable funding source that uh, we can then decide how we're going to utilize to the best effect in our own local municipalities. And so they're, uh, they're, they're working towards that uh, goal, and I, uh, I'm, ve- I'm very encouraged that we're uh, on a much, much more sustainable direction. Uh, one other thing I want to get to. I, I know your time's tight here just uh, since you're back in town now after these weekend meetings. But uh, I'm, I'm sure you saw the story in The, in the Spectator today uh, about LRT and the concerns. And I know that your staff under Paul Johnson, uh, who's, who's the, the head guy for the LRT project for the city right now, at the administrative level anyway, have been talking to all those businesses that are probably going to be impacted during the construction phase especially. Yep. And, and you've heard the complaints. I know they've called your office. Many of them have and said, look, we're concerned about a loss of business. We're concerned about a, a loss of revenue. We're concerned that maybe we not even be able to survive during this construction phase. And, and that's been a consistent problem with, with constructions of LRTs in other cities as well. The uh, proposal that was put forth today by actually one of those owners was that uh, since the city seems to be moving towards eliminating the, uh, the tax credit now for vacant buildings, that's going to probably... Uh, free up some money that was previously committed to that. The suggestion now is that that money go towards helping to the, these people deal with some of the problems they're going to be facing. Uh, it's a rather innovative idea. It's not something the city's done before. Are you open-minded to this? Uh, do you think this is uh, worth pursuing? Yeah, I think so. And I think, uh, you know, it's it's a matter of where that money goes. And, uh, you know, it's not going to be, uh, you know, the monies to offset uh, uh, business losses. Uh, that is a precedent that I don't think any municipality or government is prepared to go to. Well, that, that's still e- illegal, isn't it? If I remember from the Municipal Act, it's called bonusing. You can't bonus. you can't simply go to a business and say, hey, I understand business is down. Here's a check. You can't do that. No, we can't do that. And then there's a, there's an expectation that that's a possibility. And I just uh, I just don't want people to have an illusion that that's going to happen. But uh, providing resources to uh, provide signage, to uh, provide facade improvements, uh, which uh, things that we already do, and uh, you know we're no, we're no stranger to uh, redeveloping roads and uh, and you know access ways. Uh, we do it do it every uh, every day of the week uh, through the through the construction season, starting uh, just about now and all the way into October. Uh, there are there are ongoing uh, you know challenges with that, and we provide all kinds of different uh, programs to help and assist. Uh, 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 businesses to, uh, to 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 deal with that. So that's gonna that's gonna continue from a city perspective, but it's uh, it's also part of the Metrolink's direction. So providing community benefits and uh, ensuring that there's a smooth transition, understanding that uh, businesses need to continue and uh, finding ways of helping them do that is all part of the program. And uh, I have no doubt that we're going to put uh, put resources into that to ensure that uh, the businesses that uh, want to be there can st- stay there. And continue. I have to say, though, the you know my experience in Kitchener Waterloo and the the information they provide us was uh, it was not as dramatic as people anticipated it to be. Uh, the uh, the, uh, the level of uh, normal business churn was uh, pretty consistent. They uh, they lost about 23 businesses, which was pretty average for over that time period. And they uh, they actually all of those businesses uh, were revamped and uh, and they actually added a, a few more additionally. So. There's normal business churn. There's going to be uh, there's going to be some uh, some upset. Some are going to point the finger at the city, uh, you know, for their for their business, uh, no matter what, whether it's uh, good, bad, or, or or indifferent. Uh, but we are going to be there to help in one way or the other. It, it isn't just going to be direct cash to someone to offset their business losses. Well, to that number that that we've heard anyway, there's up upwards of 700 businesses that are along that route. But, yep. but I think it would be a stretch to suggest that all 700 are going to be adversely affected. I guess everybody will in some way, shape, or form, but as to whether or not it's going to have a dire uh, consequence to their business, I guess that would have to be judged, I guess, on each individual business, wouldn't it? Exactly, of course. And uh, you know what? Some businesses, I would say, uh, you know, are probably struggling today. So uh, you know what? Uh, it, it's not uh, not reasonable for them to point the finger and say that, you know, this is now as a result of an LRT. That uh, That isn't realistic. But you know what? To to expect that uh, you know things are going to change down there. Yes, they are. Uh, are we going to do everything humanly possible to normalize them? Uh, we are going to do that as well. So we're we're going to be there to help. We're not here to uh, to to mess our city up. We're here to make our city better, and we're going to do everything humanly possible to make sure that happens. Interesting uh, discussion when that finally gets to council. Uh, Mr. Mayor, thanks so much for the time. Greatly appreciated today. 
Always a pleasure, Bill. Talk to you soon. You bet. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, just back from Ottawa, trying to make the case for uh, increased funding for a number of different projects here for the city. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. One of the more uh, celebrated cases, I guess. I mean, we've talked about this so much over the last number of months. Uh, I, I guess because the common reaction we've heard from an awful lot of people is that happened here in this area, in our neighborhood. It's uh, about Karim Baratov, of course, the uh, Canadian who is accused in the massive hack of Yahoo emails uh, some months ago. Well, he will be back in court today to fight a judge's decision to deny bail. The ruling by Superior Court Justice Alan Witten says the 22-year-old is uh, too much of a flight risk to be given bail. Obviously, uh, Baratov's lawyers would disagree with that. Joining us to try to add some clarity to this issue is Jeff Manishin, criminal lawyer, of course, former Crown attorney. Uh, Jeff, of course, is with Ross McBride here in town, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Hey, Jeff, how are you doing this morning? Great, Bill. You? Excellent. Listen, there's a lot to sift through when you come to this Baratov case right now. Uh, you know, we're talking about uh, bail. We're talking about extradition. Uh, I think there's an awful lot of confusion about exactly what he's charged with, uh, who actually made the arrest, and why. Uh, could you could you maybe take each one of these and try to give us some some ideas to exactly what's going on and and who's calling the shots here? Wow. Uh, well, I, I will tell you. We've this, only got half an hour. I, I but... <laughs> have only followed the case, of course, through the papers. Sure. Remember, Will Rogers once said, "All I know is what I read in the papers." <laughs> And from what I, I understand, there was a basis, and it was most likely with wiretap. It could well have been with uh, surveillance, and it could well have been with uh, computer searches. And uh, it could even be based on information from, you know, confidential sources. Who knows? That the U.S. authorities brought an application to uh, extradite Mr. Baratov on the basis that they wanted to prosecute him in the States for a host of different offenses. And from what I gather, it has to do with electronic interference with data as well as effectively uh, a computer-based identity fraud. Uh, that's those sorts of activities. And from what I've read, it sounds like they had reason to believe it was done on a large scale. And there is a, a treaty between Canada and the U.S., and there is with Canada and a host of other countries, too. And the process is that the state that, you know, or the, the entity that wants to initiate it, um, they have to notify the, uh, the Canadian government. And uh, effectively, on, on their behalf, the, the process is initiated with the individual being arrested and held in custody in a Canadian court, pending a decision being made of by a judge as to whether the individual should or should not be extradited back, extradited back to the United States. So there's a hearing. Now, the test at that kind of hearing, would invo it involves the presentation of testimony, but it doesn't, Bill, involve the states, for example, having to call 20 witnesses to prove the various aspects of the offenses beyond a reasonable doubt. It's not done in that fashion. You generally have an investigator who is able to share in an overview the nature of the investigation, a variety of issues, and uh, in terms of, of the procedure, at least at this stage, the individual does have a right to have a bail hearing. Ultimately, in terms of extradition, that's something that's decided up the road a ways. The test is not unlike the kind of test we use in a preliminary hearing. A preliminary hearing test is there's some evidence upon which a reasonable jury properly instructed could convict. That's the test we use for prelim. Same kind of test for a judge to be able to decide should the individual be extradited or not. Now, that extradition hearing might not be for a number of months. And once the judge makes the order, as I understand it, it still has to go to the federal, the appropriate federal cabinet minister to decide will they are, uh, proceed with the extradition or not. If it's a death penalty situation in the States, we won't extradite. We won't and we've had cases like that, well-known cases like that, where the Canadian authorities have, have I guess, cooperated through the Extradition Act. But when it came to the ex actual extradition, they're the ones that actually would, 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 would say to the U.S. authorities no. And that issue ultimately went to the Supreme Court of Canada uh, many years ago. Um, and, you know, so that, that's a fundamental principle of justice for us. And, in, in fact, it was a pretty, let's characterize it as fulfilling or satisfying decision to see our Supreme Court of Canada say, no, when it comes to death penalty, we are not going to extradite. So let's go back to the situation here. Um, the first step in, in the process, the individual may and, and I should stop, by the way, and say there are people who will waive extradition. They'll simply say, it's fine, I'll go. Okay, I'm not going to challenge it. You see that regularly. Because, of course, the test is not, you know, as I say, extraordinarily high. 
But if the extradition is something that wants to be contested or the individual wants to at least be at liberty till he has the opportunity to, you know, deal with all of that, you can have a bail hearing. And the bail hearing is done at the Superior Court of Justice level. I'll stop there to say majority of offenses uh, bill in Canada, bail is done, bail hearings are done before a justice of the peace. Murder cases, bail is done before a Superior Court judge. Okay, same test, but it's just a different form. And uh, so but, but we, this is not a murder case yet. It, yes, it, yet it was a justice that actually heard this case. Yeah, it's it's. If I'm not mistaken, I think it's under the Extradition Act. Okay. Okay, that issues in relation to bail, and you know, I guess because of the sort of international ramifications of it, they want issues of release to be determined by a superior court judge. So Justice Alan Witten uh, heard, had heard the bail hearing, and the test is is really the same. You have to decide. Is there is there a basis to be concerned that the individual, if released, won't attend court? Is there a concern they have to detain the individual for the protection or safety of the public, including any substantial likelihood the person will, if released, commit a further criminal offense or interfere with the administration of justice? Or the third ground, it's referred to in, in the court's legal terms, the tertiary ground, if the detention is necessary to maintain the public confidence in the administration of justice, looking at the apparent strength of the case, the gravity of the offense, the circumstances surrounding the commission of it, and what kind of penalties the individual will be looking at. Now, I will, I will tell you, Bill, I have not read the transcript of Justice Witten's decision, but I know he's a very, very experienced Superior Court judge, done murder cases, all kinds of cases for years, and it was fully contested, and he gave his reasons, and those reasons are now under review by the Court of Appeal. I think that one of the reasons there's so much uh, concern about this and maybe some, some clouded ideas about this is because, you've, uh, as you've just outlined, Jeff, this is really the interaction between the U.S. and, and Canadian uh, justice systems and law enforcement agencies. It was U.S. officials that actually arrested uh, this individual uh, and, and laid the charge, I guess, uh, you know, under, under the, their investigation. Yet now it's Canadian authorities that are actually making the determination about bail. Uh, does does the U.S. Uh, side have any any standing in that decision in in that bail hearing? No, I think that their role is to effectively, as investigators, to share with the Canadian authorities. Look, this is what we've found. This is why we believe we've got reasonable grounds uh, to have arrested. Why we have a case to be able to proceed against the guy. Here's the information we have that may well support that concern that could be presented, presented before the judge to suggest the guy's a flight risk. I mean, we read the stories, of course, in the paper. And remember, always, Bill, these, the guys be given the benefit of the presumption of innocence. That's a core feature. That's applicable for the purpose of an extradition proceeding, as with a criminal case. Um, when you read about the, the guy being relatively young and the significant amount of money he's been able to raise, living with his parents, the kind of cars he's got, you know, and property seems to be able to amass, you know that the way in which the prosecution would present it is to say this is as a result of ill-gotten gains, or potentially this, this is consistent with the evidentiary picture that the U.S. investigators have put together. And they may well then say there is a concern the guy could potentially be a flight risk. For his part, he called evidence of parents offering to serve as sureties and pledging assets and so forth. But it seems, and again, I haven't seen uh, Justice Whitten's uh, explanation of this either, but I mean, obviously, uh, there are those who have who have commented on this. Uh, it seems as if Justice Whitten actually looked at a couple of different aspects of here when he determined that this individual is a flight risk. First of all, the, he seems to have unlimited financial resources, but he actually kind of slammed the parents' idea that they would look after him, too, uh, suggesting that all this was going on under the parents' nose, and they seemed either oblivious to it, or, or I, I don't think he went to the point of complicit. But in other words, they don't. He didn't seem to feel as if they were going to be responsible parents in 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 uh, I guess adhering to to whatever requirements a bail would actually have. Yeah, and that's something that is regularly the subject of consideration by courts, any court, any level in deciding whether somebody should or shouldn't get out. Is what's the release plan for the individual? And if a judge or justice felt that a surety was necessary, and that's a topic we can come back to if you like, because there was a recent, very recent Supreme Court of Canada case on bail. So, Bill, we are going to be as current as current can be in a minute when I tell you about the Supreme Court of Canada case, and Mr. Bertha's lawyers will want to rely upon it. It just came out last week. They'll rely upon it. The release plan idea is are the sureties the kind of people who are in a position to meaningfully be able to supervise the individual on release? And from what I gather from the papers, the judge basically said, how much do you even know about your son? 
and he's able to do loads of these different things, you don't know anything, how can you be in a meaningful position to exercise supervision over him? Now, the defense position is, well, up until he was arrested, they didn't have to exercise that much supervision over him. So there's our point and counterpoint for the purpose of a bail hearing. And that was one of the features that uh, Justice Whitney, from what I gather in the paper, commented on. He didn't feel they knew enough about him, you know, given what's, what his past was, to say they would be able to be meaningful sureties. Let me ask you something that may sound very elementary, but I'm sure it's a question a lot of people have when we're dealing with bail. Uh, if, if somebody sets bail, at, let's pick a figure, a million dollars, for instance, and, and somebody comes up, do they actually have to have the million dollars, to, or, or do they just have to prove that they're good for it? Ah, this will let me use my English accent, which I don't get to use, Bill. Here comes the <laughs> I, I can hardly the prosecution, wait. Which we are doing witness for the prosecution. Yeah, gonna, we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes, yeah. Yes, indeed. Okay. Uh, elementary, my dear Kelly. Um, they don't actually have to put up cash. They have to satisfy the judge they have assets to, to be able to meet that responsibility. And it may well involve presenting documentation, such as real estate, something might show the value of the home, what mortgages there are or aren't on it, matters of that sort, um, to be able to satisfy a judge or justice they have those kinds of assets. Because here's how it plays out. A surety has the responsibility to use all reasonable steps to make sure that the individual follows the conditions of release, including attending court as required. It's expected that the surety, if he or she had reason to believe the accused wouldn't follow the conditions should notify the authorities. That surety is on the hook, potentially liable, in the event that the accused broke any of the conditions of release. There could ultimately be a hearing where a judge would have to, where the individual could be called upon to possibly forfeit some or all of what they've guaranteed. They'd have a chance to show a judge what they did or didn't do to try and make sure the person followed conditions. It's not a standard of perfection, but that's called in a street hearing, a bail, and that's E-S-T-R-E-A-T, a bail is street process. And the surety, once on the hook, can get off the hook. They can say, look, I want out. They can go back to court to say, I don't want to be on anymore. Even if the individual hasn't breached, they can say, I want out. But they're on the hook till the person is back in custody. Now, in the States, the way I understand it is bail might be set at a certain amount, and the surety, they don't go, they normally don't go with sureties. A, a percentage of the bail amount has to be posted, like 10% or something like that. States you f- use far more cash bail. We tend to use sureties more than cash, much more than cash. What kind of restrictions can a judge actually impose or justice in this situation? Uh, you know, we were told that they were talking about perhaps obviously re- relinquishing the passport, and, and we could argue whether or not that's even an effective way of keeping people from being a flight risk. Uh, but, but uh, you know, and we talked about the idea of sureties, in other words, putting some cash down to ensure that this doesn't happen. But it, when in that hearing, if I recall, Jeff, they were also talking about things like making sure he had no access to computers or any kind of software, which seems to me uh, a bit of a stretch. I mean, how do you actually enforce something like that? Well, certainly the court can impose those terms. From the flight risk standpoint, they can impose things like electronic monitoring, house arrest. You know, on the electronic monitoring, they could phone at random periods of time, and there are companies that do this. You know, to be able to phone at random times, and that guy better be available to answer the phone on a landline. Um, house arrest can't leave the home unless in the company of one of his sureties, you know, as well as reporting, for example, weekly, the issue of access, they may, you may want to have a term, I mean, the lawyer could potentially propose that the police could have the opportunity to attend the home to satisfy themselves, you know, almost unannounced there aren't computers in the home. I mean, if you really wanted to be creative, that's far more intrusive than somebody would normally want to see. But you want to let the guy, you want to have the guy get out, you basically will offer almost whatever you can to persuade the judge, look, we can cover it in a whole bunch of ways, and the authorities can be satisfied he won't be a flight risk and he won't reoffend. But yeah, no access to computer is certainly one. But hey, today's smartphones are computers. Well, so, exactly. Everybody's got one in their pocket now. It's about, and then you see that sometimes release conditions saying not to be permitted to use any kind of cell phone or any device capable of accessing the internet. But sometimes those are terms that are sometimes imposed. Is uh, is this the end of it today? I mean, they're going to argue this in court today. Uh, if Justice Witten holds true and says no, no bail, is it over there, or they, can they appeal that bail hearing and, and 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 just exacerbate this whole process? I think it's the end of the line. Not a hundred percent, Bill, but my recollection was, and many years ago, I've had a couple of cases where um, murder cases. One where somebody got out, another one where somebody didn't. And one time I re- wanted reviewed by the Chief Justice, referring it to the Court of Appeal, and, you know, on a release one, the Crown wanted to have that done. I don't think there's a further appeal after the Court of Appeal's decision. So then at this stage, you know, what will happen, uh, Bill, if, Bill is, if, if they uphold the decision, we'll come back to the review process in a second. 
as they uphold the decision, well, then it'll be for his lawyers to look to get the information that they can in terms of disclosure of what the case is all about, potentially schedule an extradition hearing at some stage and contest it or otherwise. Or, you know, the options always look. We tried it. We couldn't get you out. Consider waiving extradition. Spend a, we'll spend a minute on a bail review. We got, we've got about a minute and a half, so let's do that quickly. Pardon me? We have about a minute and a half okay. left, so go ahead. Bail review, what happens is they're looking to see is there uh, some error in law on the part of the judge or alternatively some fresh evidence. Here's the recent Supreme Court of Canada decision. came out last Friday. Yeah. It basically has really kind of emphasized that too many people are detained in Canada. And even people who are released, too many people are the subject of release conditions that are too strict. And the Supreme Court of Canada said, got to be reviewed. We've got to realize that the, the whole concept of bail, they've got to be sure they're, they're applied consistently. The stakes are too high for anything less. They affect the mental, social, and physical life of the accused. The person is presumed innocent. And uh, it, it is a critical part of our system of justice that somebody should not be denied reasonable bail without just cause. And so the presumption of innocence is a core feature of our whole bail system. So I can assure you that this case, it's called Antic. It's the Supreme Court of Canada came out literally last week. The lawyers for Baratov will be trumpeting that case today. It, it couldn't have been more timely for them. Boy, and me. it's a case that hopefully will reset our bail system to let more people out, because there are a lot of people that are in custody awaiting trial, more awaiting trial than serving sentences. And that's got to change. That's what the Supreme Court of Canada said. This is, a, this is, as you say, something clearly his, his defense team is going to have in their back pocket when they go and talk in front of the justice here today as well. Do you get the sense, though, from that ruling that, uh, that the onus is now on the judge to, to build a case for denial? Um, I, uh, that's a great question, Bill. Certainly they say this. If a justice is considering letting somebody out, it's almost like a step, a ladder type principle. They say we have to consider the least onerous terms of release and say, are those going to be suitable or not? If not, we can go up a step. But every stage they go up the ladder, it should have to be justified by the evidence. But really, it's essentially then, this is a detention situation. Detention is really last resort when absolutely necessary. So you can still have detention orders. I think that the decision will help in the future for less restrictive terms. Um, and less use of sureties. Ontario uses more than they really should, the Supreme Court of Canada has said. So, but, but for this particular case, Bill, where the lawyers will be using it is to say, look, this case, it reemphasizes maybe factors that Justice Whitten didn't weigh strongly enough. A concept of right to reasonable bail, don't deny it without just cause, emphasis on presumption of innocence. That's what will be their position at the Court of Appeal. They'll try and build it in. The Supreme Court of Canada said bail review process is the same. There's no change in the test. That's what a judge should do. But they'll try and say, look, look at this decision. It really shows how important uh, the issue of bail is. And so they, they'd ask the Court of Appeal to, to view it from that perspective. It'd be interesting to see how this turns out today. Jeff, thanks as always. Great to get your perspective on this. Appreciate the always time. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thanks. Jeff Manishin, of course, a former uh, Crown attorney and now criminal lawyer, of course, with Ross McBride. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.